the world tells us that like having a big life is like the highest expression of life, right? That like you're supposed to want an empire and you're supposed to want like all of this stuff. And I am no longer interested in having a big life. I am interested in having a deep life. I don't think that scaling is the key to happiness. Like I don't think that growth and scaling are in any way correlated to having a good time here on this planet. And I know that there are many business owners who have done this, you know, who have done it successfully and who have managed to like be happy and balanced and have a wonderful life and a giant company. And I was not one of them. So I'm more interested in exploring, I guess, what's here and in having the time to go deep on things and to have deep conversations and to like really learn. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who have an insider view into a world of influence that we rarely get to see to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What do you say when you don't know what to say? You know, so much of influence is sold as having the right words, the perfect words at the perfect time. Words that get the result that you want, words that match your intention and words that result in exactly how you want the other party to feel. Words that hopefully support everyone in reaching a better outcome. And, you know, that's that's definitely one part of it. However, where that doesn't help really is in those situations where really... There are no words, or at least not good ones, where even trying to find the right words feels just like an insult to the magnitude of what is happening. And recently, I have found myself, quite frankly, in way too many of those moments. Moments of navigating sickness and loss and grief, where not only will nothing you say make it any better, but everything that you can think of to say feels at the same time irrelevant, small, and just plain pointless. However, ironically, it is those moments that the people in our lives, the people in our world, need us to show up the most. So what do you say when words aren't enough? My guest today on Inside Influence is someone whose work I have returned to time and time again in moments of my life where the complexity of what I want to say far outstrips my ability to be able to articulate it. One of my favorite bits of this podcast is sometimes just bringing you guests who, although they might not be well known, they might not be names on bookshelves that you would recognize but whose work I genuinely and consistently share with the people closest in my world. And Emily McDowell is for sure one of those. Emily McDowell is a writer, illustrator, speaker, teacher, entrepreneur, founder, and creative director of M and Friends, a company she began after her own cancer diagnosis, which makes cards and products for the relationships and the lives that we really have. 
i.e. the ones that are messy and beautiful and tricky and wonderful and a whole bunch of everything in between. In 2015, Emily was named one of Slate's 10 designers who are changing the world. In her own words, she uses her unique breed of insight, design and humour to bring words to some of the most complicated moments of our life. And it's that mission that has led her to collaborations with Elizabeth Gilbert, Naomi Watts, Sheryl Sandberg. And it was also her first book. There is no good card for this. What to say and do when life gets scary, awful and unfair to the people that you love. Which was co-authored with Dr. Kelsey Crow. I think I'm going to put it out there that this should be required reading for anyone that needs to be in a relationship with another human being. In fact, I'm going to put it out there. It should just be handed out as part of the welcome pack when you enter the maternity ward. More than anything else, Emily embodies the phrase showing up when it is hard. In this conversation, we dance into through and between and under what to say when you don't know what to say. And the power of truly showing up for someone in their darkest of times. Why greeting cards aren't designed for actual humans or human emotions. And what led her from her own cancer diagnosis to creating the phenomenon that went on to be Em and Friends. Why no one looks good falling off a horse. I'm just, I'm just going to leave that one with you. How to sit between what was and what is next, a process that she is deep in the middle of right now, and the difference between thinking your way out and feeling your way through, especially if you're someone like me, where thinking is pretty much all you know how to do, and why she recently quit social media despite having a following in the hundreds of thousands, including the conflict that we both feel about the impact social media has on the world and our contribution as people who use it to share and to put our ideas out there. Now, this episode isn't your usual kind of grab a pen and paper and take notes kind of a structure, although you might. As a conversation, it kind of started off backwards, to be honest, with the space and the questions and the surrender of where she is now, followed by what led her to this place, having built and scaled a global company in conversation around empathy in action. And yet that feels just kind of right for this topic. You know, too often... I think we don't talk about what's happening right now until we have a neat and tidy ending, a complete hero's journey, if you like, you know, a triumph at the other side of the wilderness, a sequel to our previous success. Or, and this is the hard one, we can show up for ourselves and the people in our world as a work in progress. And, you know, ironically, and from firsthand experience recently, it's by taking a deep breath and doing exactly that that we end up making the biggest impact. But for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, do not forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas. And if you want to skip to the end, keep it nice and short and sweet, just the seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most pivotal when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence just pop it in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, drive safe, cycle on and sink into both the humanity and the clarity of Emily McDowell. Welcome to the podcast, Emily McDowell. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. 
It's it's such a pleasure. It's always such a pleasure. You know, people whose lives I've followed and watched vicariously and whose work I have shared amongst everybody that I know and love when I finally get to see you. And we just had to start pressing record because, you know, as happens, as happens every time, we jump straight into a conversation. And I was like, no, no, no. Save it. Save it. Save it. (laughs) And those are always the best ones. So we press record now. Um, I want to kick off with the the question that I always kick off with, which is, you know, what's what's one idea that's just really influencing your thinking right now that's made a big impact on you? And again, the reason for this question is that those who are out there who have a radar for great ideas are usually the ones that find them first. So what's mm. what's impacting your thinking right now? Well, right now, it's funny the, the, the way that you phrase that question, because I have about five post-it notes all over my house that say, stop thinking. And one of the things that I have learned about myself in this last year or so, um, where I've been going through some some major life changes, is that um, my thinking, so I am a person who historically has has worshipped at the altar of the mind, right? Like I, my mind was how I um, was able to get praise and solve problems and be good at stuff. And I lived from the neck up for, for most of my life. And um, in doing so, I built this career, first an advertising career, and then the last 10 years with the company that I built, where I was completely overriding my nervous system with my mind on a daily basis and I didn't know it. I didn't, I I did not recognize it until I hit an absolute wall of really being unable to like function and continue and go forward. And so right now I'm finding myself in this, I'm at a real crossroads in my life and I genuinely don't know what I'm going to do next. And I have a lot of thinking, there's a lot of thinking going on about what I should do or what I could do or like what the world wants me to do or, you know, all of this logic, like my brain really wants to apply logic to this problem. And I am working really hard to say, okay, brain, like, thank you. Thank you for your input. I'm going to put that over here and I am going to tune into what does my body want? Like, what does my intuition want? What does my spirit want? Even if it's not logical, even if there isn't, you know, it, if if there's if i cannot back it up with facts if i like i have learned if i have if i haven't learned to pay attention to that information and to see it as real information i feel like i've learned nothing mm. i'm i'm struggling with my brain at the moment because a part of me <laughs> wants to go into what i wanted to talk to you about and a part of me just wants to go right here so i'm just going to go i'm going to go right here um because I deeply, I deeply resonate with that. And it reminds me of, you know, there's been a couple of times in my life where I've taken an extended break. Nothing's, mm-hmm. you know, nothing huge in the scheme of things, you know, a couple of months, two, three months. And I find that those moments are actually the hardest for me to, to get into the place that I know that I need to get into. To, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, to put the pen down long enough so that the next chapter that you write isn't just a rerun of the last chapter, that mm, you're genuinely mm-hmm. starting with a new chapter. But what that takes 
is it takes being comfortable with a blank page, right? Yes. And that is like the hardest thing to be comfortable with, to not just start immediately drawing all over it or handing the pen to somebody else and going, what do you think? Like, this is a blank page, quick fill it. What do you think mm-hmm. should be on this page? Yeah. Yeah. You're good at writing. You know, you know how to, you know, you know, like to fill it up. Yeah. You yep. know me. Yep. What, you know me. You like, do? you know what I'm good at. What would you do? It, it, the temptation is, is just so there. Yeah. For me as well. And so how do you, how have you been sitting with the void? Because there's different phases to the void, right? The fertile yeah. void, let's call it that. There's the first phase of the fertile void where you, there's just recovery from what came before. Yeah. Yes. And then and there's the next phase that comes after that. Tell me about your experience. Yeah. So right now my experience, I'm actually still as much as I would like to be into the next stage where it starts to feel like some kind of like I'm surrounded by fertility, like I'm a seed that's been planted, I still feel like, you know, I'm in, in surrounded by darkness versus surrounded by earth, if that makes sense, right? Like I'm still in this space of really needing to un- unwind and, and undo and sort of like, I am coming off of a period of, of a, of a, 18 year long period more than that 19 year long period of working 80 hour weeks on a regular you know regularly um and it was and it slowed down a bit in 2021 but then there was also the added sort of emotional psychic everything kind of load of um knowing that we were selling the company um, that I started in 2012 um, called M and Friends, which is a stationary brand, um, if, if anyone's listening and not familiar. And so there was that, that weight um, was, was there, even though my actual work hours were reduced last year. And so it's really, I, I'm also hitting, I'm also hitting midlife. I'm like deep in perimenopause, kind of nearing, I hope, this menopause transition. And I can't work the way that I used to. Like, even if I wanted to, which I don't, there is nothing in me that wants to work that way anymore. I actually can't. Like, I don't actually think that I, I don't think that my body will do it. You know, I don't, I don't have it in me to like sit in front of a computer for 14 hours a day anymore. And so for me, it's been like a, I've been in this space of just, trying trying as hard using all of my skills and resources and tools to stay present in what's here um and to not ruminate on the past or project into the future or start or try to problem solve against a future that i don't know what it is yet but just be here like just be here and to enjoy this time like i had you know i have a i have a consulting income that goes until March and then I have nothing. And so I have this kind of, this kind of year really, I had this really fortunate situation where I have sort of 15 hours a week of income that I said, okay, this is enough for this year. I am not going to go out and look for more work. I'm not going to try and reinvent. I'm not going to spend this year trying to reinvent or trying to like build something new. I'm just going to like take this gift of time and this, you know, sort of this income that I have and, and be okay. Like just, and because it'll be a waste, like what I don't want to do is look back on this year and think like, oh, I could have actually just enjoyed myself 
And instead, I was stressing out about something about, you know, what was going to come next, when really, I have a time to, to, to be slow. And so I have been, I had a really good summer, like I, I did stuff, I went and saw friends, I traveled, I like, hung out with my partner, like I went to my stepkids soccer games, like I did kind of normal life stuff, which sounds so goofy. But coming from the place where like I put work first for so freaking long that it really is I feel like I am um like I'm a like I'm a child you know trying to learn for the first time kind of how to be a person in 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 many ways um and how to be a kind of a person where it feels good to be in here like it feels good to be in this body and in this mind and so like i don't know if that answers the question at all but that's what i've been doing <laughs> um, i think yeah that would beautifully i think it beautifully answers answers the question there's a, something that i've been thinking about a lot is there's this beautiful i think it's a native indian um sorry native american proverb and it talks about taming the wild horses of your mind and i've been thinking about that a lot you know to learn at this age, you know, in my early 40s, mid 40s now, which is birthday, um, to actually think about my mind as, all right, if this is, if this is, this, this tool is my responsibility. Mm -hmm. you know, if I am not this tool, but this tool is my responsibility, then how do I want to work with it? How do I want to treat it? How do I want to hold it? What space do I want to give it? What guidance do I want to give it? You know, that's a very similar to you. You know, I felt like a brain in a jar just kind of walking around for many, yeah. many years. That's a very different relationship with my mind than I than I have had before. And I would have said mm -hmm. I had a very healthy relationship with my mind. My mind was great. Like it's it was yeah, awesome. I would have been like, yeah, yeah, yeah it works po great. Like point and click. Right. Give me a problem. Yeah. Give me like yeah. give ask me for a strategy. You know, my brain's awesome. It's something I can rely on totally, totally. until yes until you can't, until it can't solve that problem. It can't solve the problem of your body saying no now. It mm -hmm. can't solve the problem of, of, you know, what's it gonna come next when nothing has been revealed as yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How have you, how are you taming those horses? How are you learning to tame those horses? Mm, I, um, well, I've had a meditation practice for about five years um, that the taming of the horses for me Honestly, it started in 2018 when I hit when I hit a wall of just physically like I feel like it was like a physical, mental, spiritual, emotional bottom. Like it was just like I cannot do this anymore. I can't keep going in the same way that I've kept going. And so that was about five, four years ago. I don't at time. I don't understand time right now. <laughs> pandemic. Um, and in that in that last five years or so, I have, I started to do, in addition to making some like really big sort of changes with how I viewed work and my relationship to work, I also started doing breath work. I started doing somatic therapy. I started doing, um, uh, I started working out, which in a, in a consistent way, which, which um, feels like in a different way than I ever had before. So I started weight training about a year ago and my whole life, my relationship to exercise has had been, 
this is something that I must do in order to look different. And so I hated it um, because I felt like I just was failing. Like it, it was like, it was, it was not only was it something that I was failing at in that I was never looking the way that I felt like I was supposed to look, but it was also like set up as a punishment, like as, you know, so of course, like, of course I'm going to hate it. And so I've been in this last year entering into this different relationship where like I am doing this, I'm not measuring it. I'm not measuring my success there by how I look. I'm measuring it a hundred percent by like, how do I feel in my body? Am I stronger? You know, can I do, do I feel more confident doing things and experiencing more of the world than I could a year ago? Like, can I do a harder hike and like go see this waterfall that I couldn't go do a year ago, you know, and I got to see the waterfall. And so it, it's like, it's a byproduct, you know, and it's, and it's feeling more. And so it's, it's so I guess that's a very long way to say, you know, repairing and creating a new kind of relationship with my body in that particular way. Um, I have a meditation practice that, uh, you know, one of the reasons I love meditation is like, we all suck at meditation. You know, like I am a person who historically has measured, like I've only done things for a long time, starting when I was a very little kid that I was really good at because excelling at something like the risk of not being good at something meant the risk that I wouldn't be loved. And so in my head, you know, excelling at things was the way that I got love and praise and felt safe. And so it was unsafe to my nervous system to be, to do stuff that I wasn't good at. And so I just said no. And one of the reasons I love meditation is because everyone sucks at meditation. Like we all, like by the virtue of the fact that we are sentient beings with minds that wanna go forward and backward in time, which is one thing that differentiates us from other animals, is that like we are, you know, we're inherently, like meditation is inherently challenging for everybody. And so it's really all about the willingness, like are you willing to like sit your ass down and do it or not? You know, and, and that's what it's about. And so it's very simple in that way. Um, and there is a, when you're, th I mean, I've taken, you get taught, you know, when, when meditating, you're observing your thinking, you know, you become this neutral observer. And so what happens when you meditate is you are, you're, you're paying attention to your breath. And then all of a sudden you're like thinking about that thing that you said last Tuesday or whatever. And then you notice Instead of just going off in a spiral, you notice and you say to yourself, you know, thinking, thinking, and then you sort of send that, I notice the thinking, and then you're supposed to sort of like send that thought down an imaginary river and go back to your breath. And I have taken that process, taken that practice and done it in my, put it into my just daily life. So like, I will be, you know, driving my car, I will be like, or I'll be online and I'll see like an ad for someone's, you know, digital course school. And I'll be like, oh my God, I should do a digital course. Like, uh, like what will I, how will I, you know, how will I make a living in 2025? I need to make digital courses. Like I need to do that. Like my mind will go into like 17 directions. And then I go thinking, like thinking, 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 and like put that aside and just try to, you know, return to present moment. What is me thinking right now? What What is the opposite of, of that? Is it, I'm going to say the word faith without any kind of 
you know, connotations attached to it. Right. Is it, is the opposite of thinking faith? Is it that it will find Mm, trust, trust, maybe trust. Mm -hmm. it will find me. I don't need to chase it, which when Mm -hmm. you, when you are someone who has built something, scaled something, created something, pulled your, taken your will, the will of your mind and turned it into physical reality. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to accept the idea that something is just going to arrive. Oh, you know, it's I, so hard that oh. you have to wait and like that it will just happen. You're like, what? You know, like, and and yes. to believe that, and 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 yet, what what I find both confronting and truthful about that is, if I have plotted out, if you, if I looked and I've I have thought about this, if I plot out every significant moment in my life where things have changed where something's gone to the next level where i've changed direction where something amazing's happened every significant moment was by no design of my own i had to show up i had to show up with good intention i had to you know there's a lot of things that were required for me to meet it where it came Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i could not have and did not come up with a single one of those they arrived by yep. virtue of, of me just showing up thinking I was doing something else. How, how can that faith become more a part of our, our daily lives? Like how do you let go of that attachment that if it is to be, I must make it be? Mm, it's such a good question. And I think for me, just the practice, it's been, it's an ongoing practice and it's also an ongoing practice of like reminding myself what you just said, because the same is true for me. Um, but to, I would say most of it, I wouldn't say all, but I would say about 90%. And I would also say that for me, when I look back on the sort of pivotal moments of my life or the things that I, things that I did, the sort of, you know, Im- improbable, the successes, the whatever, none of it was, none of it was anything I could have predicted, right? Like none of it, like you could have put me in a room with a typewriter and a hundred years and I never, ever, ever would have written the sentence um, you know, I'm going to start a stationary brand and end up on Good Morning America or whatever, you know, like whatever it is, like that never would have, none of that would have, would have um, come out of my, of my brain. Like my brain would not have, have been capable of imagining that future. <laughs> Which and is interesting so, just of itself, yeah. right? Your brain was, yeah. was not capable of imagining that future. Yeah. So I think about that when I now am in my little brain trying to imagine what my future is in 2025 and I remind myself like this has never worked you know (laughs) like and like I admire you know there there are people who are like I manifested you know like I imagined this and I like and I willed my way into it and I you know and I bent the universe's will to match me and we operate on the same frequency and together we co-created this like and people do that and that works for a lot of people and the and the, the manifestation and like sure and I also know that for me, that's historically not how my life has gone. Um, and so the trust right now is to just say, like, to just look, like, look at my historical evidence, like, look at the precedent, you know, um, and say, like, okay, you know, more of this. Like, can you do more of this? Um, and can you also then, now that, you know, you have an awareness now that you didn't have, 10 years ago, the last time you went through a a massive transition, like, um, you have an awareness around what you don't want and like, what doesn't work for you and around the fact that 
there is there is a lot of cultural pressure I think to have or or the the world tells us that like a, having a big life is like the highest expression of life right that like you're supposed to want an empire and you're supposed to want like all this all of this stuff and I am no longer interested in having a big life I am interested in having a deep life because I had a big life and I hated it what's the distinction there talk to me about the distinction um so the distinction in my head is I don't think that scaling is the key to happiness. Like I don't think that growth and scaling are in any way correlated to having a good time here on this planet. And in fact, in my experience, they actually were counter to me having a good time here on this planet. And I know that there are many business owners who have done this you know, who have done it successfully and who have managed to like be happy and balanced and have a wonderful life and a giant company. Um, and I was not one of them. And for me, um, I feel all of the stuff that, you know, I, that the world said was going to make me happy. It just like didn't. Um, and so I'm more interested in exploring, I guess, what's here and in having the time to go deep on things and to have deep conversations and to like really learn um, and, and not just be running from place to place trying to, you know, uphold a system of my own creation in service of like the growth of of my thing um and i think you know that's a what i didn't understand when i started my company was like i was like of course like growth is good you know if if people want the thing that we make like why wouldn't we grow in order to serve them like why wouldn't we do that why wouldn't we just like get as big as you know like get as big as the as the demand is like why would we not do that and um, I think about it really differently now. I mean, in addition to, there's also like a practical business reason why, like something I didn't learn, something I never knew as an entrepreneur was that there's also like kind of a sweet spot in terms of like where, when your overhead is still pretty low and you have like in terms of like your actual revenue and in terms of like how, like there is a, and this is something that I think doesn't get talked about in entrepreneurship where like you have a, you grow to a, when you grow to a certain point, like there'll be a certain point that's kind of a sweet spot where you have like relatively low overhead and if you're profitable and you're not, you know, it's, you, you don't have to do like this insane constant song and dance to maintain where you're at and you don't have to, you know, you don't have, you can, there's a point at which you can, you can push past that point and yes, like you can increase your revenue, like and this is especially for like a product-based business, which is what I did, you can totally do all these things to increase your revenue, but also your, your expenses, your overhead is going to grow in commensurate in a commensurate way. And so you're going to have more staff to manage. You're going to have more moving parts. You're going to have a more complicated infrastructure. You're going to have like all of this stuff and you'll have more and you'll have more revenue, but how much 
will that actually impact your bottom line because your all of your expenses and everything else is also going up and so like at a certain point what i did was like create way more work for myself without without with not making a i mean a little bit more money but not like a material amount not like a real any life-changing amount of money you know it was like sure at the end of the is our revenue higher yes way higher but like is our actual profit higher like not that much you know and it sounds so i'm gonna say it sounds so obvious but it is not because i know many many business owners who are celebrated within the media for being incredible operators and they are incredible operators and extremely talented who have got caught in that place mm -hmm. and i think it's because even if you understand business to a degree which most of us let's be honest when we start out on an entrepreneurial journey we understand business to a degree of if I give you this and you give me that and what's that in the middle? Awesome. That, oh yeah, I'll take cool. that thing Money. in the middle. Okay, cool. But like I hadn't taken math since 10th grade. Like I didn't, you know, I was not, I was, wow. yeah, no. Mm -hmm. But you look at what we, look at what we celebrate. We celebrate, I don't know what your version is, but we have, um, you know, we have fast growth lists. Yeah. We have, you know, top 100 lists. The Inc. And, 500, we have all that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it always, yeah. now having grown and scaled a company, it always kind of makes me laugh now in not a good mm -hmm. way because yeah. what you're celebrating there is you're celebrating, um, you're celebrating gross revenue. And every single yes. business owner or entrepreneur or venture capitalist that I know don't particularly celebrate gross revenue. You know, we, we celebrate profit much unless you're in tech that's a yeah. whole different scheme of things right now but you celebrate profit margin you, right you don't like you can make tens of millions of dollars and spend double that <laughs> exactly you know, why right. would you be at the top of this success list if you're you know making 100 million dollars and spending two it yes it doesn't right. make any sense as a metric well, and yeah, that is the metric we have shoved down our throats from like the beginning what's your gross revenue what's your gross revenue yes and it's also the tech model really hurts that because these all these tech companies that are that are designed to not be profitable for x number of years right and in order to grow their customer base and in order to like set themselves up for future profits and so you have these companies that are valued at like a billion dollars that have never been profitable and it's like will they ever be i don't know we don't know and we're going through that right now in the you know in the us with lyft and uber and all of the delivery services where all of a sudden their prices have like got have skyrocketed in the last year and at first it was like well is it the pandemic is it gas is it this and like actually as it turns out it's investors going um you guys we invested in you like five years ago and you've had these artificially low prices for five years as a way of growing your customer base but like it's time for us to make some money. So we have to prove out your model now. And so everybody's like, um, can I, ha am I just gonna go back to taking, like I should just go back to taking cabs cause now there's no difference, you know? And it's it's been so interesting to see these models that we all sort of heralded, like these services that were heralded as like groundbreaking and, you know, like disruptive. And like, do they actually work when they're not artificially like propped up when their model is not artificially propped up by venture capital like do they actually solve these problems any better than the old solutions and like sometimes i think the answer is no and so that's been it's a bit of a tangent but that's just been interesting to watch and so i think yeah i think you're you know it's it's true we have this celebration of gross revenue but like as a business owner i will tell you like that it means nothing you know like 
um and it's also a lot of work like it's so much work <laughs> like it's so much work to scale um and when you are scaling uh when you're scaling for you know you like i i have certainly had the experience of looking back on looking back and being like why did i do that like i could have just kept my model really simple and kept it sustainable and gotten really like gotten a lot of practice at growing at being the size we were and therefore gotten more efficient and gotten better at it and you know sort of made my life easier and um ultimately would have ended up with like not with kind of the same amount of money you know mm, yeah. <laughs> so anyway i don't regret any of it but it but it has been interesting it's been such an education but I think you have to go through it that way first. You don't have to. You have incredible mentors and people around you. But even then, I think, even then, if I'd have had people whispering in my ear, mm -hmm. saying, I, I still think I would have gone after the holy grail of growth. I still think I would have gone after, no, I have this revenue figure in my head. Me too. And yep. this is what I'm shooting for. And you know what? I am endless. You know, how's that for a, a mantra? I am mm. endless. And so, you know, watch me prove to you. Yeah. Or how endless I really am. Yeah. And then you reach an end. Oh, and... yeah. I felt really endless at like 34. And now, you know, 12 years later, I'm like, oh, I ended. Like, yeah. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> see, see how I ended. Let's yeah. go all the ways that I ended. Turns um, out. Yeah. And it's messy. And sometimes you get through it and you, and you stay on the horse or you get back on the horse and you do it differently and you come up with new ways. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get off the horse, back away from the corral and go, I'm just, I'm going to be over here. Yeah. Like and, I'm going to go make dinner in the house, you know, or yeah. whatever. Like I'm, I am out. <laughs> oh, and, it, and not in a not in a kind of a cute way. You know, I'm not going to dismount this no. horse in my in my cowboy hat and look really cute and kind of saunter over to the house. No, no, I'm going to fall off, slide off this horse, hit mm -hmm. the ground on my head, and then I'm going to crawl through right. the sawdust. <laughs> I may spend some time in a hospital. Yeah. Ultimately, eventually, I'll be making dinner in there. Just yeah. you know, everybody yeah. come yeah. back later. This is this is not doing well. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, I'd love to say that, you know, I've dismounted every horse really beautifully. And actually, most horses I've just dismounted in a really kind of, you know, messy, <laughs> ridiculous fashion with everybody. Yeah. All my friends sit around me going, ooh, ow, ooh, 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 right. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> totally. My friend's like, Somebody, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody open a bottle of wine first. She's going to need it. Um, I, want, I just want to go backwards. Yeah. Because we, I don't know, I felt like, you know, we went to the end of the journey there and that was the right place to go. But now I just want to go back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, not necessarily the beginning, the beginning. But I want to talk about where Em and Friends began and your diagnosis with cancer. And, you know, I'm going to hand this story over mm -hmm. to you now because I know that the version of the story that is real and the version of the story that was reported in the press, you know, ad nauseum, are very different things yeah they left some stuff out you know it's not that it wasn't real it was just you know it was a it was a shortened and and media friendly version of the story which is that i had hodgkin's lymphoma when i was 24 and i had a year of chemo and of radiation and um during that time i learned i mean the hardest part for me about having cancer was not the mortality piece or the fear like that piece i think that I, because i was so young i was also like oh i'm you know like the fear of death was like not even sort of registering right and um the same with like losing my hair and like all of these kinds of things that like you hear about 
bitter hard about being sick. It, it was for me, it was um, just the loneliness that I felt when people didn't know what to say and people bailed kind of as a result, like turned away and shied away and people who I had counted on as friends and family and, and, and just got got so uncomfortable that they didn't they didn't know what to say and what to do. And I recovered, you know, I, I, I spent I spent a year going through treat, treatment and I recovered and I was terrified of what would happen if I got sick again and, and didn't have insurance. So I had um I had amazing health insurance. I had I was so lucky and then I had a kind of health insurance that doesn't exist anymore. It was like I worked at a, I was I was working in corporate marketing at the time um, in a non-creative position, and it was the doc. It was the year two thousand. It was sort of the dot-com boom, and so it was like my medical bills were over a million dollars, and I paid like five thousand out of pocket, and it's just unheard. Of. Like you, that doesn't happen anymore. And so that and my company folded actually while I was in the middle of treatment, so I didn't have a job to go back to. And um, but I knew I felt like. I need insurance, like more than anything else, like I need a corporate job so that if I get sick again, I can, you know, not, um, so that I can have that, that security. Like I know I have insurance. And so I, um, I started working in advertising. I went to a, a year of a portfolio, excuse me, portfolio program. And then I worked as an art director and then I switched and was a copywriter and, and ultimately a creative director. And I spent nine years in that business and getting that foundation um, in how to build a brand and how to think strategically and have a million ideas on demand. And like all of the, all of those skills were what then enabled me to start M and Friends. So I was about nine years into my ad agency career and I was miserable and I had been miserable since like year three. And I was just, I had just kept doing it because I was, a, I just was like, well, I've put so much time and energy in like, I don't know that I can do anything else. You know, I had all of the stories of like why people don't, you know, why people stay in a job they don't like. And ultimately it just got to the point where I was like, I cannot do this. Like, I can't imagine doing this for like next week, let alone like 20 years from now. And so I, I quit my last full-time job and I started to freelance in that business as a transition phase. And then I started thinking like, what can I, what can I do? Like, how can I work for myself and what do I love to do? And the things that I loved to do were psychology, like the, the things that drew me to advertising were this combination of writing and art and psychology. And like, I love thinking about the human condition and how and why we do what we do. And, um, and I started thinking about greeting cards as being like, well, greeting cards are the thing that combines all those things. Like it's a communication tool. It's like, I get to write, I get to draw, I get to do all this, all of this stuff. And in fact, it's like, so, and I, and I always had struggled to find cards that reflected my own reality in the store. Like I would go to the store and stand there and all the Mother's Day cards were like this gushing poems. And like, I had a really complicated relationship with my mom, you know, and like, every Valentine's Day, like I was always in these sort of like, are we dating? I don't know, you know, like nothing like on those cards, like never applied. It was just like, I, you know, and then this is a card because I, I feel like you, we should have a card, but this yeah, is like, we should but this, this is, in any yeah, way. Yeah. And, um, and that card didn't exist until we kind of made one. And, and then there were, of course, get well cards, which were so horrible. 
Um, and when I had had cancer, there were, you know, there's like a get well soon card, which is weird to get if you might not. <laughs> You're like, cool, thanks. Like, it's like, it's appropriate if you have like a broken leg or something, but it's like, otherwise it's kind of like, is this a challenge? Like, you know, and then, and then there's like, you know, um, car, and then the only other kind of, of card were like blank cards, which nobody knew what to write on them. And then these, and then cards that were like, jokes about having cancer that were that were so bad and that were like that read like they were written by someone at a, a card company that was assigned to write a card about cancer you know like jokes about like having getting cute new bras or whatever you know breast cancer cards about like or like cute wigs or you know like things that were just kind of like this isn't if you'd actually gone through this you would know that this is a dumb thing to say um and then there were all the platitudes, you know, all the like everything happens for a reason and, you know, this that kind of bullshit. And so when I started, I, I started what became Em and Friends um, on Etsy. I, I opened an Etsy shop and I did a Valentine and the Valentine went viral. And it was that it was the Valentine for the person you're kind of dating, but not really. And um, so it was like the speech, like normally you would give that you would give that person a regular card and also a speech like, oh, I know we're not like together, but yeah, it felt weird to not say anything. So like here, here's a card. And I just turned that speech into a card. So it was this long text of like, you know, it's not a big deal. It doesn't have a heart on it. And then at the bottom, it said, forget it in like tiny letters, you know, and it was like, basically, this is a card saying hi, forget it. And nothing, there was nothing out there like it at the time. And it went like crazy. I put it on Etsy and it just went insanely viral. I printed 50 of them and I figured like I'll sell five. I didn't have a following. I didn't have like, I didn't have anything. You know, I, I had a social media, I had a Facebook page, I guess, for my, for my non-existent card business that was, you know, it had like 50 followers that were first? like my, the, the, the my friends. The Facebook page. Totally. And you know, and this was 2011 and like, I, you know, I, um, or 2012 and I, anyway, I, 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 I put it, I put I, I put it in the shop and then I actually went to a conference and I started getting all these emails at the while I was at the conference that were like, where's the card from these people from people that were like, the card is sold out, the card sold out. And I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? And I had to go look. And it turns out that Etsy had put that, that card on their Facebook page. And it had gone completely viral. And it was before any of the algorithms changed. So like you would see stuff from a brand in your feed the way that you would see stuff from a regular person. And it was their most liked and most shared post of that entire year. And it got picked up by like everyone, you know, Vice Magazine, front page of Reddit, Cosmo.com, like everything. And I sold 1200 of that card in one week. I had to individually one by one to people all over the world. And it was like, people were in like, I'm in South Africa, like, how can I get this? And I was like, just print it out. Like, it's a card, you know, like, I cannot <laughs> take, a photo like, take a photo, right? Like, there are not <laughs> enough days between now and not like, I cannot get this to you, you know, like, I, I like, just, just, you know, and they were like, I'll pay, I'll pay, you know, shipping $200. And I was like, it's, it, it was so funny. Um, And I think this is now very different, right? Like, this was 2012, when people like, were just kind of not didn't really get like, oh, I can just steal it. Like it was, you know, like people were. Where is the physical like, version? I know, I know. And like, and so, um, so yeah, so I, and I had of course put it up for sale on like February 1st, which, you know, if and the lesson number one in selling any kind of physical product, right, is like you, you have to take a week to ship it. So like, you have to sell it far in advance, far enough in advance of the day that you have to. So I could only sell it my week. My selling period was only a week, basically, right? So I had a week, and I, 
and I sold, um, did I say 1200? I meant 1700. 1700 is what we sold one by one in a week. And I sent them all out with the help of my partner and, and his six-year-old son who was like stuffing cards and envelopes, you know, and I didn't know, I like, I just kept calling the printer and saying, I need more, I need more. And so that was actually the card that launched the business. I went and then I went and, and put my head down and did a series of 40 cards and launched them at wholesale. And from the beginning, like I knew the thing that I really want this to ladder into, this is going to be, this is cards for the relationships we really have. This is the idea. And the thing I want this to ladder into more than anything is changing how we do get well cards because get well cards are so dumb. And this is the time when you need a card the most, like nobody needs a Halloween card, but like you need a card when you are at your loneliest and lowest that, that lets people, lets, lets you know that someone loves you. And I knew enough about marketing to know, and I, and this paid off. I mean, this was a risk, but at the time I was like, I'm going to wait a year to launch these because I think that this company is going to grow. Like, I think that I'm going to be able to make a name for myself here in this industry. And I have to trust that no one is going to do this first. You know, that like, I have this idea, right. And I'm going to launch it in a year and I'm going to launch it when I have the attention of like some media outlets and some retailers and like, when I have, when I know a little bit more about what I'm doing to be able to get this out into the world, because if I launched it now, I don't know that anybody would really pay attention to it. Like, I don't know because who am I? Like I am, I am, I don't, I don't have a, I'm already introducing something that's, that's different and weird. And I was already getting sort of immediate pushback from retailers saying there's too many words on these. These are weird. These are different. And the, and, and, so I wanted to give the brand a minute to do what I sort of knew in my gut that it was going to do before I introduced this whole other layer to it. I want to just stop you there because there's, you know, we talked about trust and faith and that's, you know, for a lot of us, you get handed an opportunity and, and you're like, run, like grab and run, run as hard as you can before anybody else figures out what this opportunity is or can kind of catch up to your ankles. That, that's a bold move to send on something that you knew would be huge. It was. And it was also, it's so funny because looking back, I think that my willingness to do it was as much about naivete as it was about strategy, right? Like I had this strategy, but had I known what I know now, like if I was doing this now, I don't know that I would have had the guts to do that because what I know now about trend and the product industry and just like how all that works. Like, I think that now if I had an idea like that, I would be afraid to sit on it, but I know too much, you know, like I think, and so it was like, honestly, it was a, it was a function of not knowing, not knowing how freaked out to be or how like, you know what I mean? Like how, how like it was, it was this strategy and it was this ability to trust that came also from a, um, you know, I hadn't been sort of poisoned by, by seeing what I went, you know, what I went on to see. So it was, so it was information. interesting. I didn't to know what to be, to know what to be afraid of and to know what to worry about. Right. And, um, and to know that also like the thing that ha also I was so like coming from advertising, 
the biggest, the hardest thing for me when I, when I made that shift was in advertising, if someone else did something, like if someone, if there was an idea that someone else has done and, you know, and put out in the world for a campaign or whatever, if you try to do the same thing, like if you, if you rip it off, um, like you're a hack and no one will work with you and like, you'll get fired. You know, it's like you get like this idea of like having a quote unquote original ideas is like all it's your entire currency as an ad creative and the awards you get rewarded and promoted and, you know, uh, get jobs based on award winning creative awards and you win creative awards from original thinking. And so like the entire industry in, in that way for creatives is predicated on this idea of like originality. And so there's this huge ownership of like, that's mine. You took it, you know, or like people getting really angry, like, well, so-and-so ripped me off, like, or that agency did that idea like five years ago and then this agency did it. And so it's like, it's nothing, you know, like it doesn't, then it's, it's just, they're just hacks and they're terrible. And so that was the education that I had in terms of like, that was my education and creativity. And so coming into the world of product was such a weird, terrible, rude awakening in that what I realized was like, if you make something that no one else is doing and you put it out in the world and everyone says, oh, I want that, then one season later, everything else is going to look like it. Like that's you've congratulations, you've started a trend and that's how trend works. And like, there's no moral high ground like there's no like people don't have ethical issues about it like pe there are entire companies that exist on just like trend spotting taking something that other people are doing and like doing it and also doing it and like not trying to do you know groundbreaking original stuff because retailers want things that they know are going to be like proven sellers and so something that like capitalizes on existing trend or retailers like cool if something is too new and weird retailers are like oh i don't know i can't risk buying 12 of that and then trying to sell it, like what if it doesn't sell? And so it's a completely different mindset um, coming to creative. And so like I, you know, spent three years being really indignant that everyone was ripping me off all the time <laughs> before, like, before realizing like, duh, dummy, like, no, this is just, this is how this works. This is how it works. Um, and, uh, and, and so yes, um, that's a long, 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 long story short. I ultimately released empathy. What became empathy cards? What were we became most known for? Which were our answer to sympathy cards? Um, a little over a year after after my brand was launched, maybe two, a year and a half, and that was what really you know sort of snowballed and the brand doubled in size overnight. And just really, you know, we had been successful and and, and had grown very quickly actually up until that point. And then that just like actually we grew to a point that was difficult to sustain like it was so fast and it was so um it was it was everything was changing like week by week by week in the business um that it was just it was really difficult to keep up with it and so I just I spent a couple of years just running after the business I just want to talk about your process there for a second because you know, this one's kind of very present for me at the moment mm -hmm. I, I went home to the UK spent a month at home with my family, hadn't seen my family for three years um, because pandemic. And in that time, I had to say goodbye to two of my, two members of my family. Mm. Um, one that I wasn't able to get back in time to say goodbye to. And the other one who I was able to get back in time to say goodbye to and who has since passed. And I just want to talk about, because there's obviously something in you 
that finds it, I'm not going to say the word easy because I don't know, but is able to tap into that what to say when you don't know what to say because, I mean, I work in a world of words, right? It is my Mm -hmm. job to come up with the right words. It Mm -hmm. is my job to work with people on the right words. This is all I think about. And yet, you know, I find myself in those rooms. I find myself, you know, even now with members of family who have lost their their brother, father, Mm -hmm. not knowing what to say, not having those words, sitting there staring at my phone trying to compose a text message for half an hour. And just ending up with something that sounds ridiculously just not even worth saying because it's the only thing I can think of that doesn't sound like it might, you know, backfire. Right. What, how, how do you get there? In those moments when we don't know what to say, for moments that we're never prepared for, how do you come up with the words that hit the places that we want to hit in our hearts? Um, I love this question because this isn't something that I had innately, like this is something that I learned, you know, over time. And, and also I want to say that, but the phrase that you used having the right words, that is the absolute killer. Like that's the reason that we don't, that we feel like we're not good at this is because we have been conditioned to think that there is some sort of right magical words that we can say that's going to take away somebody's pain. And that's going to like, somehow fix it and I don't know if it's like Pinterest or like Oprah or like you know what it is but like there's this idea that like there is going to be that there's that there is something that we and that and that we can't that we that we can't say anything until we can come up with those those magical words and like that if we don't we are failing and that you know there is a that 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 and there's also this idea that we have to that the job of those words is to um, is to somehow lessen someone's pain, and that's actually not true. So, like someone who is in pain, someone who's sick, someone who's lost someone, someone who's in like tremendous amount of pain, they don't need or want you to take that pain away. What they want is to just know that you're there and that you love them, and that you support them. And so we have this this idea in our heads of like, oh, if I could only like craft the right thing. And that's also where the impulse to do like platitudes, like, oh, they're in a better place or like everything happens for a reason or like, you know, it's to to impart like some kind of like philosophical like wisdom or like a reframe or something that now people are talking about toxic positivity, which was like not a thing a few years ago. Like, I'm really glad that, that this is kind of coming up where it's like bright siding, right? Where people are like, but, oh, they were old or they were, you know, like they're whatever they it is, life. at least anything that starts with just, or at least, you know, at least you have one healthy child, at least, you know, mm. it, those things are never helpful. And in fact, what, what they do is they make the person who is going through the thing feel alienated and feel unheard and like well, they remove the permission don't they you have yeah nothing. and like that they're they not allowed to grieve to right that their that their grief is unwanted or like un you know um that there is not space for them to grieve um and so we actually make it harder than it needs to be because of this belief that there are the right words and that there are the things when really so much of it is just about being present and it's about a willingness to listen. So like 
and also be willing to sit in silence because a lot of people silence we also like western culture and you know in general for us like silence is we have the phrase awkward silence like silence you know we've we're taught that like silence is awkward and you should fill it and there should be this constant flow of conversation and you know whatever and actually just just being willing to sit in silence is incredibly valuable in a time when someone is going through something you know and to not try to fix it and to not try to like spin it and to not try to do anything except just be there with your energy and your presence which shows the person like I love you there's a card that I you know I do know how to copy and paste off my screen I have <laughs> learned many many useful skills over the years um and if you don't mind, there's one here that I that I would like to read because actually yeah. I have I have sent this card oh. um, a number of different times, and it's one that really really speaks to me. Anyway, I'm going to read it. I'm going to tell you the line that that always gets mm. me from it. Um, it's called "What I Want You to Know When Everything Feels Dark." I know you've been struggling lately in these times when it's hard for you to see the best in yourself. I am keeping a record of everything that makes you incredible. I know how strong and capable you are, how loving, how deserving. Your kindness, wit, and creativity are a permanent part of you. No storm can wash them away. I'm not afraid of the dark, and I'll be here to light your way until your own flame burns bright again. Most of all, I want you to know that you are loved. You are so loved. And the part of the part of that card that always kind of gets me, like, gets me is I'm not afraid of the dark mm -hmm. that line yeah I remember talking to a friend whose daughter had um had suffered from anorexia and she eventually she recovered and but we were we were having a conversation and she said and I, I think I must have asked her the question you know what how how did you respond at the time when you when it was going on and how looking back what guidance would you give people about how to respond and she said you know what the biggest thing that I wish that I had done at the beginning is made it very clear to her that I am not afraid. This oh, dragon, you are, yeah. this dragon you are fighting, I am not afraid of it. Yeah. And she's like, but actually, you know, you're, you're, you're terrified to the, to the core of your bones. Mm -hmm. And all she needed to hear from me was I am, you know, I am not afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, mm -hmm. I can weather the storm with you because I'm, mm -hmm. I have you. Basically. I have, I got you. And, you know, I got and, you. And I want to say, I want to say really quickly that that card was actually written by one of our wonderful writers on our team named Carrie Chapin, who, um, under my creative direction, but, you know, with me, but like, who, like that I am, uh, it, it, I want to make, make it clear that I'm not taking personal credit for the writing of that card. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I, I think it's so, it's so effective and so wonderful. It's one of my personal favorites in our collection for that reason, like that it is, it makes it clear to the person that their darkness is not a burden, you know, that they're, that they are, and that, the, and that they're, what they are going through is not that, that like I, the person giving it are like, I'm not afraid. I'm willing to go here with you. And like, this isn't, it's an act of love versus an act of like, I, obligation or fear or need or whatever um, that that it's that it's an act of love and I think that like the 
it reminds me too of like the sort of ring theory, which I can't remember who the, the psychologist is who invented this, but it's essentially the idea that when you are afraid, you know, your, your child is going through something really scary and it's freaking terrifying you, but that you, you support in and you dump out. So like the, the innermost ring is the person who's going through the thing. And then the out, the next most outer ring is like the close, the, the family, like the close family and the friends and the support. And then it's like friends and then it's like acquaintances. And, you know, so as it, as it gets the, the sort of like concentric circles going away from the person and the person you say, I'm scared to is not the inner is you don't go in, right? You don't say to the person who's in the thing, I'm scared. If you're a if you're a acquaintance of the of the person, you don't say to the mother of the person, I'm scared. You can say it, you know, the mother can say it to a friend, but she doesn't say it to her kid. You know, and so it's like it's like the the support goes in and then the fear goes out. Yeah. Um which I love that because that's, you know, if you look at community or network, mm-hmm. you know, that's the the natural the washing you know, I'm just thinking tidal, you know, it comes in and then as a community, we pull it back out mm-hmm. and then we feed good things in. And then as a community, we pull what doesn't yeah. need to be there back yeah. out. And it also, the, the, the message there is you don't need to rescue me. Like yeah. you don't need to spend any energy at all thinking about how you need to rescue me or make this pretty for me or um, somehow mm-hmm. shield me from mm-hmm. whatever this is. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's an important one too, because I think that a lot of the time what happens when you are, excuse me, when you're grieving or when you're, when you're going through something hard, you end up like, because everyone around you or so many people are so uncomfortable, you end up kind of using your energy to manage the energy of the people around you, like to kind of make it okay. Like I remember, you know, having running into like random high school friends and stuff like people because I was living in my hometown when I was going through treatment and like I looked sick you know I was bald I was clearly like going through cancer treatment and so I would run into these people who I hadn't seen since high school and they would immediately like start crying like people would sort of have these like have these really fear-driven react like people would be like oh my god like this happened multiple times where people would just have this response that was like oh my god I'm so sorry like you're so sick. Like, I'm so sorry. This must be awful for you, you know? And like, they're crying and they're, you know, and, and (laughs) so like, I would have to be like, it's okay. You know? So you find yourself like sort of comforting that person, which is not really the position that you, you know, really ever want to be in. And, and that is the kind of thing that happens a lot. Um, and so to anything that anything that we can do to sort of make that to alleviate that and to take that job off of the person um, to have to manage your emotions around the thing is also like extremely helpful. And you, you end up writing the book um, with Kelsey Crow, mm-hmm. which is Correct. there is no good card for this. What to say and do when life gets scary, awful un- and unfair to people you love. What what hit home most in writing the book, you know, is there, is there something that you learned through that process that has stayed with you, that has changed you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I learned so much in writing this book. Um, Kelsey, my co-author is an empathy researcher, PhD. And so after the success of the cards, you know, publishers were like, Oh, we want to do this book. W- will you do a book? And I was like, well, the book I wanted, and they said, Oh, well, just do a book of your cards. And I was like, well, that's not a, that's not really a book. Like the book that I really want to do, the cards exposed a need to for people to have a tool to be able to have these conversations and to be able to actually show up 
for other people. Like people don't know how to do this. And so there needs to be a guide, you know, there needs to be a book, like a down to earth, non-religious, non, you know, just like very approachable, friendly guide to like how to do this when you don't know what to say and what to do. And I think, you know, a big piece of what I learned was really all of the sort of the research behind what we were talking about earlier, which is the, that there aren't, that, that you don't actually have to fix someone's pain with your words and that actually trying is the trying to fix someone's pain is like the is the actual wrong approach and that it's easier that we make it harder and that it's easier than that and that it's really just about being present and the willingness to try like knowing like also people are not going to judge you for trying you know like for fumbling over your words it's okay to say i don't know what to say it's okay to say that um you know you're you're human and ostensibly this person that you're talking to knows you already right and already loves you and so it's fine to say i don't know what to say like i love you i support you um you know don't go into this whole spiral of like, I don't know what to say and it stressed me out and like whatever. And then they have to calm, calm you down. Like, no, you know, but like this idea of like, you know, you don't have to, we think that we have to be this, like that we're supposed to be perfect. That there is like a, that there's like a perfect way. And then we get hung up on, I don't know the perfect way. And then you don't say it. And what happens so often is that you don't say anything because you are afraid and it's not perfect. And you're like, when it's perfect, when I find the thing, then I'll say, then I'll say something. And then so much time goes by that it makes it worse and it makes it more awkward. And then you're like, oh shit, on top of that, like now, now it's been however long and I never reached out and now I feel guilty on top of not knowing what to say. And then the relationship in many cases just like falls away. Um, and you feel guilty about it and, and terrible about it like forever, you know? And then the, and the other person feels like, well shit, they didn't care about me. Like, and that's actually not true. You know, when I was sick and when people turned away, when people just disappeared from my life, my takeaway was it's because I'm not lovable enough. It's because they don't love me. It's because there's something wrong with me. And the biggest thing in, you know, in doing this book and in seeing all of this research and in like learning, you know, uh, through Kelsey's modeling and all of what Kelsey has, has done is like, no never about me like it's not about the it's not about that at all it's about and so it was healing it was like profoundly healing for me um to be able to to do this book and to really see like no this is really a universal problem that's present in so many cultures it's present in you know and it's and it has to do with our own feelings of inadequacy and doesn't reflect how we feel about the person at all and i think also conditioning Yes. You know, I'm yeah. British. My parents are very British. Very much. Yes. Very British. And, you know, in in England, the, the I can't speak to other cultures, but in England, you know, there is that cultural conditioning of, you know what, if it is bad news, we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and if it is good news, we can, you know, happily chat. But if there's bad news, you know, best we don't. Best yeah, best we don't, we don't go there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Invest any energy in it because, you know, we're just attracting your attention to it and we don't want to do that. And and I can remember going through, um, not a story that I've told publicly before, I remember when I was going through IVF and we had had a miscarriage. And I sent my parents an email and for no other reason, I just couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I 
mm-hmm. that moment. And I sent them an email and I just said, you know, this has just happened. Um, I just wanted to let you know, you know, I'm, I'm probably just going to go under the radar for a, a couple of weeks. And, and I have to say as a side part to this story that my parents are, you know, extraordinarily loving and compassionate human beings. Mm-hmm. And neither of them responded mm. to that email. No response. Oh my gosh. And when I talked to them about it later and I asked them, I was like, well, you know, what happened there? You didn't even respond. And they were like, well, we just, you know, we didn't know what to say. So, yeah. And, you know, again, in that moment, the story that goes through my head is, you know, do you not care? Is that just, have you just read it and gone, you know, yeah, not like, oh, home, but oh dear, let's move oh, on. Do you oh, well, want me to yeah. feel sad about this? So you don't want to encourage me to feel sad. So I'll yes. get over it quicker if we don't talk about it. Yes. Or you don't mention it. Um, and I think that, you know, we are conditioned in various different ways. Yeah, we're absolutely conditioned. Leave it alone. Yes. You know? There's this idea, the conditioning is also, it really extends to like this fear that if if I bring it up, it will make it worse. And that's actually, you know, all of the research, like that's the opposite is actually true. That like the person is thinking about their thing like 24 seven, you know, like the person is thinking about their thing, whether it's grief, whether it's an illness that they've been diagnosed with, like whatever they're going through, that thing is on this person's mind. So it's not like they've forgotten about it. They don't have the luxury of forgetting about it. And so you bringing it up to them is not going to like suddenly remind them like, oh my God, I am, it turns out I am, have a terminal illness and I had totally forgotten. Like, nope, it doesn't work that way, but we think it does. And we think like, oh, I'm going to make it worse by talking about it. And actually, no, like talking about it helps them feel seen and it like, and it, and it um, validates their experience, you know, and it, and it, and it validates their reality. Um, and it, and it's, and it's what we need to do. And, and yes, you're totally right. The conditioning is a huge, huge piece of it. What, what's the one thing, you know, if there's somebody listening out there right now who, again, no judgment and no shame, who knows there's someone that they haven't reached out to, or someone that they desperately want to reach out to what as a way to begin that dialogue, just be really honest and say, I've been thinking about you and I didn't reach out. And I didn't reach out because I didn't know what to say or because I was scared or because I was worried I would say the wrong thing or whatever it is. And I just want to let you know that I'm sorry and I've been thinking of you and I love you and I support you or, you know, whatever it is that you would say. But I think there's always a place for honesty and you know, you can't control how someone is going to respond. And, but like I would, the vast, 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 vast majority of the time that person will be thrilled, you know, to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for, for jumping into these conversations with me. You've been driving an incredible conversation around empathy and quitting and, and all the parts of life that we that we jump into, that we fall into, that we crawl our way through and that there's often no words for and you've given them words and and I want to personally thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.